This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I'm sitting down with Rob Dickinson. Rob Dickinson is the co-founder and CEO at Resurfus, an innovative platform focused on data privacy and API activity. His work around observability, cybersecurity, and the Internet of Things has set him out as a thought leader in this part of the tech world. As a technologist, Rob seeks to build a future of responsible and ethical API. He's a pioneering thinker in the movement to regain ownership of our data and in what he calls zero trust cybersecurity. Hey Rob, how's it going? Good. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, this is so exciting for me. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Um, Rob, let's start with some first principles. Resurface deals with API systems. What is an API system? Yeah, we can get the acronym out of the way because uh, it's not all that helpful, but we can say it out loud. It's an application programming interface is what API stands for. But what we really mean in terms of a practical definition is an API system is designed to be called over the internet by an application. And that's fundamentally different from a web-first system, which was really designed to be consumed by humans using web browsers. So instead of the client being a web browser, the, the client is really an application. And that's really the big shift here, kind of at a cultural level, is we're moving from an internet that was originally designed for humans to one that's really dominated by all this interconnected software and, and interconnected applications. What are some of the ethical questions that come up in the context of API systems? <laughs> all of them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> top five. This is top five. Yeah. So that move to these API first systems, it's really redrawing the lines between automated systems and their human operators. So there's immediate ethical questions around privacy, security, consent, fair use, liability. All of these things have to be re-examined and re-examined in the context of this technology that itself is adapting and evolving very, very quickly. So how do you go about re-examining them? What are some of the kind of nuts and bolts of, of doing that? And then how do you engage with these questions on a philosophical level? Are there philosophers who work in your company? Are, are you taking these on yourself? What's your process? You know, it's funny. It's shocking how many people I've run into in venture capital, especially who actually have philosophy backgrounds. You know, I think that's one of the places where you see applied philosophy really at scale and having a, a really interesting impact in, in the dynamic between capital and how that's being applied. But I think at a macro level, you know, this move to an API first economy, it, it has a frame drag in that it, it involves business people, technologists, legislators, I mean, across the board and, and customers. We're all consumers of these systems at, at the end of the day. We're kind of all in this boat together. So I think at the end of the day, it, it draws a very wide net. And again, our expectations are changing very quickly. The capabilities of the technologies are, are, are changing very quickly. And, and that itself you know, brings new opportunities to, to really think about you know, what, what the proper thing is to do. 
Can you give us a case of one way in which they're changing very quickly and the ethical case that it brings up? Yeah, I mean, if you look at it at a macro level, you know, a lot of the early use cases for the internet are expressly about sharing data with others. I want to share my pictures. I want to share my videos. I want to share my relationship status. I want to share this. I want to share that. We're moving beyond that now into sharing more data for business transactions, for healthcare information. There are completely different implications for sharing that kind of data, maintaining that kind of data online. And there's a lot more at risk, frankly. You know, if my healthcare information, that there's potentials in there to abuse a lot more than just, you know, maybe an embarrassing picture makes it out, out, out you know, onto Facebook. And especially as we're moving towards the these API-first systems, there, there are newer, newer cases that people are just dreaming up where this data access can really be abused or we're consolidating too much data through too many third-party relationships or supply chains can truly become exploitative and anti-competitive very quickly. I should go back to something else that you said earlier, and I just wanted to highlight it because I try to, every once in a while, put a PSA in my podcast, and that PSA is take your humanities classes seriously. You say that there's a lot of people with philosophy backgrounds working in the context of technology that you encounter. Can you say a little bit more about what you think that skill set brings? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the process of, of innovation itself is really the process of seeing the world for how it is and truly being able to see the world for how it is and how it got that way and why these things are the way that they are and and then imagining what a better world would look like and and being able to shift between those those two perspectives and i think ethics is really a, a key of that you know when you think about you know and i'm i'm not the ethics uh professor on the call here but 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 the idea of, of running the thought experiment, you know, the way that Kant would run thought experiments, what, would this outcome be right? Would that outcome be right? I mean, I think that's really what a lot of venture people do. A lot of, of early stage entrepreneurs are certainly doing is is really that interplay between, you know, this is the world that I've been handed, but but what would a fairer, more equitable world look like? And and that being a vision that, you know, you may not accomplish it in, in your lifetime, but at least you know what wall you're putting your stone in. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, I come at this actually trained not primarily as an ethicist, but as a professor of English literature. And oftentimes I get asked the question, well, what is a professor of English literature doing talking about and thinking about and engaging with and intervening into questions about ethics and technology? And the answer that I give to that frequently is before we create anything, we first have to imagine it. So before we build, we actually first have to imagine what that world might look like. And that in itself is not an ethical question, I think, necessarily. You can imagine all sorts of terrible worlds and try and build horrible worlds. In fact, some people build terrible worlds with the understanding that what they're actually building is a utopia. This is the project or the utopian vision of the 20th century that we saw going very, very wrong in hideous ways. But I do think that we get to an ethical question when we ask ourselves a question, what, what ought the world to look like? Or what should the world look like? When we, when we enter into that realm of thinking, a vision of the world as it could or should be in a way that aligns with human, and perhaps now we can also think about human in terms of the planetary uh, values. When we start to think about that, I think that we are entering into ethical territory. Can you say a little bit about how your work, in particular in data privacy, enters into ethical territory? It provides a, a vision of the world as it should or should not be, or perhaps protects against a world that ought not to be. 
Yeah, I think I think today we see very, very strong incentives in the market for sharing data too permissively. You know, the the, the platform owners, the the folks with, with a lot of capital at their disposal are, are more than happy to take as much of your data as you want to share. And some of the implications of that haven't even been invented yet. I'm glad to see more access to healthcare being available through APIs, for example. But but the potential attacks against that data haven't really been invented yet. But you know they're coming. You know they're out there. Uh, you know you know that it's only it's only a matter of time. So I I think it's almost impossible. I mean I totally agree with your with your base point, which is I I think it's it's almost impossible from an engineering perspective to invent anything that that doesn't have negative consequences or or unintended consequences especially if its acceptance goes off the charts and it really becomes mainstream and and hugely popular which which of course technology is and it's also incredibly complex which technology is so i i think we're entering a world here where we're we're constantly going to be redrawing these boundaries of of what is ethical what is not what is fair, what is not, and having to solve that in new contexts that we can't even really imagine yet, right? This, the stuff that the science fiction writers are talking about, you know, and that's why they have fun doing that because they can, they can kind of look at those, some of those quandaries, you know, for technologies that nobody has a clue how to build yet. Um, but if they did exist, you know, those, the, those are the questions that we'd, that we'd be asking. I love this conversation. It's really exciting for me to meet somebody who's so thoughtful about these questions in the tech industry and so animated by, I think, some of the philosophical questions. So I have to ask, what, what's your background? How did you get to the place of, of starting Resurface? And, and what kind of was your path there? I, I am an old school nerd. I started, you know, I started doing software as a, as a hobby when I was a kid. My, my origin story is really, and I'm dating myself, obviously, in saying this, but uh, I, I really wanted an Atari for Christmas. <laughs> And I did not get an Atari for Christmas. Instead, I got a PC and a subscription to PC Magazine. And my dad, because my dad was basically like, I'm not going to buy you games. I'm not going to buy game cartridges. And you like plug in and like instead of going to an arcade, like if you want to play games, like, well, you should write the games like you could do that. Right. And I had no concept of how to do any of that stuff. But that's how I got started. And that's what you did. Like back in the day, you know, we couldn't just download stuff off the internet. Like if you wanted to play a game, you'd, you'd get Byte magazine and you'd have literally have the program listing in there and you'd type it in and you'd have to figure out where you went wrong. And by the time I got to college, and the thing is at the time, the idea of like making money in software was like almost laughable. Like Nobody makes money in software. That's like you make money in hardware because that's like something that people would pay for. But software, you know, that's just that's just playtime stuff. But but by the time I got to college, I realized like, wow, I, I can make I can make as much money doing the software thing as, as any anything else that I could be doing from an engineering perspective and just, you know, stayed stayed on that track. Was there any particular question about software that excited you or that animated your interest? Or was there something that you were trying to solve or create? Or was it just what will people pay for? For me, I've always been a creative person. I've always been interested in music or creative arts. And I, a lot of the people that I talk to, especially in software development, are also amateur musicians. And I think there's a lot of crossover there. It, it's a lot of, you know, I, I have this thing. What kind of tune can I get out of it? 
And from that perspective, programming a machine is, is kind of like programming just a very, very sophisticated musical instrument. And I don't know. I mean, that's that's what I like to do. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what, you know, I, I, I want to be an artist more. <laughs> I want to be an artist spiritually <laughs> in terms of I'm always looking to do something new, something different, something creative push the boundary. You know, I went the traditional route. I, I, you know, I got a degree in electrical engineering, but I took all my electives and got a minor in creative writing. Oh, and, wow. um, well, there were girls there. It was part of, <laughs> part of the motivation, <laughs> if I'm being completely honest. But, but to me, that was just like the perfect mixture of, of, you know, you, you can create something technically, you can create an idea and bring it on the page. And, and I think I, I almost learned more that I use today on a daily basis from my creative workshop classes, really, than than anything I learned in, in engineering school. Because, you know, if you're going to be on a technical team, if you're going to be on a team in tech, if you're going to be trying to do something that's disruptive, that's what you're going to have. You're going to have a group of people and you're all contributing ideas and hearing things differently than they were intended and said and, and that whole interplay just just tells you so much and that's what I love about what what I get to do on a daily basis. <laughs> Rob, we will work out the uh, funding fee for your PSA on taking your humanities classes seriously uh, after the show. <laughs> I, I appreciate I appreciate you helping me deliver that as possibly as forcefully as I've ever had it delivered on on this podcast. You know, we can find all sorts of things here, like getting the girl, and, or at least seeing the girls, <laughs> and uh, succeeding in in, an, in a very tough industry. I wanted to maybe pivot here and ask you a little bit about data privacy, because your area really has to do with this fundamental, I think, deeply important question that our society is grappling with right now, um, which is what it means to share our data and whether or not, and this is a strain of thinking and argumentation that I've only recently started to hear, um, whether or not we should own our data. Your, your website points out that API calls carry a lot of data. You say that you need to own this data, not share it. Why don't we own our data in the first place? So there, to start with, there are some very strong incentives in the market to not own your data, right? The, the, like we said before, the, the platform owners are more than happy to take that data for free from you and monetize it for you. The statement, you know, data is the new oil, I think kind of gives a, a pretty fair take on how a lot of people look at, you know, monetizing this, this data that's being offered up freely online. And I personally love the idea of my personal data becoming a saleable asset itself. And, and I know there are some really smart people that are talking about that concept. To me, that seems a little futuristic, but, but I think it's a, it's a progressive one. It's a good one. And that's something that we should be going towards. I think the more immediate concern and, and, why, and why we're talking about owning your data is more about our, our expectations around third-party surveillance. And that's really what GDPR, CCPA, a lot of the legislation is really getting into is what third parties have to be involved in this conversation and is that is that being disclosed and is that positive now i think we all understand that if 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 i'm using your platform for free then i have the expectation that i'm paying with my data in some way right but if I'm a paying customer or if I'm conducting business with you, I might have a very different expectation about what third parties are going to be involved in that. So think about 
a lot of what we do when, when we're asking ourselves these questions is what would the analog in the physical world look like? And, and, you know, can you translate to, to that domain? So, so if I think about an economic transaction, I'm going to go down to the corner store and I'm going to buy a candy bar. Well, can you imagine if the, if, if the teller said to you, Hey, how would you feel about sharing all this data with Google? Would you want to share this, this business receipt with Google? Well, why, why am I doing that? Why would I want to do that? What possible benefit is there to me to, to doing that? And I think that's where we, we certainly have a disconnect right now between what we would expect in, in the world today and what we would like. Like I would, I would like to, have private transactions online the same way that I'm able to have private transactions in the real physical world and have that context of, of privacy and security that's that's wrapped in that. You know, what we have unfortunately too much of today is that this transactions happens on a particular platform and that means that there are 50 to 100 third parties that are automatically opted in to that data and that's really what legislation, what GDPR and CCPA is really pushing back against is this automatic data transfer and data sharing that puts Google or Facebook in a position where they literally have data about what everybody is doing when really nobody opted in on an individual transaction basis to actually share that information with them. And maybe you can put a finer point on it in terms of the ethics of that that situation, because I think that it is, I think it's clear if you put the breadcrumbs together into a trail, but I think it would be really important to actually spell it out. What is the ethical issue? Why not allow people to just have your data? What could possibly go wrong or what might be a violation if, for example, Google should uh, collect all of my data? Is there an ethical principle that this is violating? Are there ethical consequences that emerge out? this? Yes. I mean, I think instinctively, right, instinctively, right, the answer is is yes. But but I think that the thing that, that worries me the most is 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 actually the fear of the unknown there. You know, you don't know who's going to own Google in the future. You don't know where that data is going to end up. This this data itself ends up being a durable asset. It ends up having a lifespan of its own that is really independent of the caretakers even. And you know, how that data is going to be used in five years or 10 years or what AIs will be using it. Like, again, we're back to what the science fiction writers would, would, would predict around this. And so I think we have a responsibility to try to stay on the safe side of that as much as possible. And a big part of that is just paying attention to it, you know, asking the question, is this ethical? Are we doing the right thing? I think is maybe the most important part of that whole process. It's, you know, it's, it's categorically leaving out that concern, I think is what leads to the absolute worst outcomes. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely speaking my language here. I really, I really appreciate what you say. It really resonates with me. And I think that another issue when you mentioned that we don't know who's going to own this data in the future, or what kind of capabilities or possibilities there might be to enlist it in certain unethical ways I think about not the future of it, but what we're actually seeing right now and the fact that this data harvesting has often been used to manipulate human behavior. And I look at that in, in the terms of the consequences for our society, everything from political polarization to vast inequality to the creation of 
desires for material goods that drive things like ecological disaster or that drive people into deeply harmful emotional states. So I think that the ethical consequences are already imminent and potentially already here. But now you've gotten me thinking about a separate issue, which is whether or not uh, we ought to be in a position where we can actually have some economically equivalent exchange uh, with our data. And I've had increasing numbers of conversations with folks in the industry and, and critics of the industry about data ownership. And some of their ideas strike at the core way in which the internet operates, which is that we don't own our own data and that we consent automatically without even thinking about it to giving up our data to companies in exchange for using their services. And that's something that we're so used to that most of us find it obvious and we do it without a thought. But Joe Toscano, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago, argues, and I, I think he argues very persuasively, that companies benefit disproportionately from our data, far in excess from the services that they actually provide us or for, from the benefit that we glean in that exchange. And in Joe's view, an entirely different model could exist. There's a different model of how the internet could or should be, one in which we sell our data with our consent, with our decision making at the foreground, and then we profit from it. What do you think? What would owning our data look like? In that in that context, I think it's interesting, you know, when you think about blockchain, for example, and you think about attaching data, you know, so you have a blockchain and you can basically attach that to, to almost anything, right? And I could have a blockchain for myself, I could have a blockchain for my house, I could have a blockchain for my car. I mean, I think, first of all, again, we we have to think about this in a world where the humans and the machines almost have equal footing in this world. And I think that shifts some of our expectations. I mean, how do I think about a non-human actor, you know, an independently formed corporation that's actually run by an AI, right? I mean, this is not actually that futuristic. This is literally right around right around the corner. How do I feel about that kind of thing, owning my data? But I think at the end of the day, I, I think Joe is absolutely right that the the tooling that is set up in the way that our economy works today the the largest companies absolutely benefit disproportionately from all of that data but at the same time they are the platform owners and it is very difficult to change that ecosystem you know all at once at the same time towards something so i'm like i said before i mean i i personally love the idea of my personal data being a saleable asset and and maybe we'll see blockchain technologies more being applied towards towards that kind of data stewardship than than just recording transactions. And I think a lot of people are doing that. I think maybe a good example is in, you know, a lot of that is happening in real estate. There, there's a number of real estate ventures that are really looking into that of patching data about your property to a blockchain, exposing that to contractors, exposing that to Home Depot. What would that mean, having that level of traceability? But again, it's it's going to be in a world where it's it's not just the humans. I mean, the humans are definitely there, but but there's going to be a lot of automated systems and a lot of interconnected software that, that also has to somehow negotiate all of these issues. Let's talk a little bit more about those interconnections. You promote what you call zero trust. It's one word, zero trust cybersecurity. What does cybersecurity look like when it is zero trust? So again, making an analog to the physical world, I think here is, is super, super helpful. 
what a lot of people, when they think about when they think about security, is perimeter security. And so I have an inside group and I have an outside group, and I can trust my inside people, and I've and I've got a, a safe boundary, I've got a safe perimeter that I can enforce. And if you think about this in the physical world, it's it's the front door of your bank, right? And if you're inside the bank or outside the bank, if you're a trusted employee or if you're a customer, you know, you're you're drawing those clear lines where where your perimeters are. But especially from a cybersecurity perspective, we have to recognize that attackers dominate the usage of a lot of these systems. So when I first started building web systems, you know, back in the day, if you got hacked or you got attacked, it was like kind of a badge of honor. Like, look how cool we are. Like somebody's paying attention to what we're doing. You know, we're, we're getting hacked. We're drawing this attention. That's cool. That's novel. It's kind of like running a bank and you have a bank robbery. It's like novel. It's event. It's dramatic because it's a once in a time thing and it doesn't happen that often. And it's big when it does. Our modern expectation is, though, when you connect an API, when you expose that API online, it's going to be under immediate attack. And it's going to be under constant attack the entire time that, that it's available. And the folks that we talk to, once once they can actually see into the traffic that, that they're actually getting, they realize that a, the dominant segment of that traffic is actually from attackers. So think about what that would mean in the real world. That would mean that, that I'm running this bank and that half of the people that walk in through the front door are there to rob the place. And that's day in, day out, every day. So is perimeter security going to work? No, I mean, it's obviously not going to, right? So that's really what, what Zero Trust is about. It, it's, it's about erasing those boundaries. Another example of that, that that's a more positive example, is that you're, you want to open up your bank operations to more partners, more lenders, more customers, right? So you as a, as a business, you, you actually want to expand your perimeter to be more competitive and to take advantage of what the technology affords you to do in, in that extent. So this, from a cybersecurity perspective, there is no real inside and outside. There is no real trusted administrators versus everybody else. You kind of have to regard everyone with suspicion and you have to design systems very differently than around, around those ideas. Can you talk us through some of the actual technology, what it looks like to build a zero trust cybersecurity system? You know, a lot of the inspiration, I think, comes from physical security models and and really just, just translating those. One of the biggest things about zero trust is that you're dividing and segmenting your responsibilities. So you you recognize that your people are the weak link. And what you want to do is you want to design systems so that it just takes too many conspirators to be able to actually carry out a successful attack that you just you just really drive down the the odds and of course there's there's different data sets that people cite about this but but really you know once you get beyond two or three conspirators that have to participate in in a specific attack in different silos or different departmental areas very few conspiracies actually succeed once they get beyond five people so you really design for that. And so there's no God mode. There's no like trusted administrators that have access to everything, right? You, you segment and compartmentalize your, your operations and your technical systems. And that's not really a new idea. I mean, that idea about designing your security around the number of, 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 of conspirators that would be necessary 
you know, that that is not at all a, a new idea. But but the idea of translating that to siloed technical systems, that's what we're calling zero trust. You mentioned the kind of debate between what you call perimeter cybersecurity and what you're calling zero trust cybersecurity. Are there other debates happening right now in cybersecurity? If so, what what are some of those debates? Well, I think certainly one of the debates is what is the standard of care? What is good enough? This is a constantly moving target. There are new attack vectors that we're seeing this year that have never been seen before. And these are ending up in the news. You know, you look at things like the Peloton attack, all these supply chain attacks that are going on, ransomware attacks that are going on. There's not a general sense that we're winning here. I think there's a general sense that we're behind where we should be, that we're vulnerable, that we're exposed. So I think a lot of the debates that are happening really come from that perspective. You know, how do we get more people in the org to care about these things, you know, pre-detonation? How can we increase the rate of change without increasing our risk? How can we evolve and make things better without having unintended consequences? How can we grow our businesses at the same time? How do you position cybersecurity as a way to generate business instead of just a cost center? But I think ultimately, so many of these debates, you know, this is a progressive field and it's it's a great field to be in. It's a great field to go into because a lot of this is ultimately about how do we do better? You know, you can always do better. You can always improve. And but but it's a very, very complex landscape that's changing very quickly. So there's there's always going to be debates about what's the best way to tackle it and and also what are really the the threat vectors that we should be most attuned to. When you use language like what ought we to do or what is the better thing, what's the better answer, what's the good question or how do we avoid unintended consequences? You're speaking my language because you're speaking the language of ethics, which is of course the language that I deeply care about. But while this is, of course, a show about ethics, one critique that I actually take very seriously and one that I've gotten about elevating talk about ethics in the context of tech is that ethical conversations are exactly that. They're about what we should do. How can we avoid negative consequences? And what we should do in the space in particular where there are no rules. Ethics is by definition the thing that we practice when we make a decision in which there is no rule. And I think some legitimate criticism about ethical talk is that we shouldn't be talking about what tech companies ought to do in the space where there is no rules. We shouldn't be talking about what a tech company should provide in terms of cybersecurity that will protect the people who use their platform. The critique I've gotten is that we should talk about rules. We should talk about what rules these tech companies have to follow. And of course, another way of putting that is that we should be talking about having laws and that ethics can be, at times, a convenient distraction, very helpful and convenient, perhaps, to companies who don't want to have to deal with laws or regulations and would rather have less restrictive and binding conversations about ethics, which is, as I said already, not regulatory or enforceable, but optional. If you're ethical rather than following the rules, that's great for your PR. If you're following the rules, that's not great for your PR. You're just following the rules. So should we be talking about laws when it comes to cybersecurity? If so, what laws? I, I think we have to talk about laws. <laughs> I think it's I, I think it's unavoidable to, to get to that point. These technical systems have such far ranging consequences for all of us. I, I think it's I think it's Pollyannic <laughs> to expect, you know, a long term a long term world where there is no legislation around these issues. 
I, I think is not not reasonable. Um, I think I think the laws that we have, you know, GDPR being a, a good example. I think what's good about GDPR is that it's an attempt to establish standards of care. It's it's an attempt to put a price on privacy and security as things that you would price. You know, we talk about data being the new oil, but like what price do you really put on data when you're giving it away for free? So actually establishing a market for privacy and security and, and superimposing that. I see the, the benefit of those laws. It's not a way to force companies to implement those policies because there's a problem here, which is I can't just buy a solution that implements all those policies and then I'm done. These are these are very complex issues to have to to have to go through. So what these laws can do is they can give the technologists some cover and some time and the excuse to actually work on these issues. And I think that these are problems that technology created. These are problems then that technologists have to be involved in in solving. And it's very, very helpful, I think, to be able to say as an architect or as an engineer, hey, we have to include security and privacy planning in these systems that we're building because we have a standard of care that we're going to be held to there. That's a way of getting privacy and security to show up from a budgetary perspective, from a staffing perspective, that I think would be completely lacking or or at least not as incentivized in, in the way that, that it could be. I think we have to acknowledge, though, at the same time, the legislation, it tends to be a bit lagging here. It's very difficult to anticipate how this technology is going to evolve over time. We didn't all have cell phones. And then a few years later, we all did. I mean, it's these things change very, very quickly. But I think establishing those standards of care and, and putting this on everyone's radar you know, what you want at the end of the day is you want you want your engineers to be solving for this and optimizing for this the same way that they're optimizing for the other factors that are going into these systems and just not leaving that concern out, but making sure that that's actually on the table. You know, one of the reasons that I'm so attracted to questions about cybersecurity is that I think it shares something fundamental with a kind of ethical framework. And when I say that, what I mean is that over the many interviews I've had and the many conversations I've had about uh, how to build an ethical company, one principle that seems uniform across people who are doing tech in a variety of different arenas on a variety of different pro products um, is that ethics can't be something that you kind of add after you built something like a prosthetic that you just kind of put on once your product is complete. It really has to be built into the foundations from the get-go. And to me, you know, in the conversations I've had about cybersecurity, I hear people saying the same thing, or at least something very similar, which is that cybersecurity oftentimes is the last thing that a company thinks about after they built that product. Whereas in reality, it really needs to be the first thing. You cannot tack on cybersecurity as a kind of, you know, a shell that helps protect a product after it is complete. It really has to be thought through from the origins. Can you say a little bit about what it means to think about building a company with cybersecurity at its core as a, as a value and as practice? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you so nailed it there. And this is why the, the legislation can only go so far, because this is really not like a fire extinguisher kind of situa situation, right? If I'm going to run a commercial kitchen, I have to have a fire extinguisher and everyone in the kitchen has to know how to use it. That's an easy thing to mandate. And there's a there there's there's an easy purchase, there's an easy transaction. It's it's easy to get that that fire extinguisher and plug it in, and show people where it is. It's easy to conform to that. 
what does it mean to be cyber secure itself? Well, now you're talking about well, what what domain are you are you operating in? Where are your customers located? What kinds of transactions? So much of this is contextualized. I might feel weird about being surveilled if I'm just walking through your store, right? That might feel weird. But the minute that I put my, my credit card down, there better be a record of that transaction. And it's interesting how even the most privacy concerned people that we talk to are also the ones that expect traceability under certain circumstances. So it's not, you know, at the end of the day, part of the problem here is that cybersecurity is really not an objective binary measure. And, and not every security problem is just fraud or bad actors. These are really ethical concerns and privacy concerns that have to be worked through in the in the specific context of what the system is actually doing and i think that's why the good legislation and i know i'll make some people bristle when i call gdpr good legislation it's a good first try right but that's really what it's about is to try to establish those standards of care so that over time you can move things in, in the right direction and not over specifying what it actually means to be secure. And you'll hear people sometimes over rotate on that, like everything should be encrypted, and then it would be secure. Well, I mean, legitimately, not everything needs to be encrypted and treating everything as though it does is not a shortcut to thinking that is actually useful in, in an everyday business business perspective. Right. Any more than I should treat everything I interact with in the physical world like it's plutonium. A lot of the things that I interact with are not plutonium and I don't need to treat them that way. And I would be stupid and overcautious to, to have you know security protocols that I don't actually need. Yeah, it's a, it's a complex it's a complex, you know, to what it means to actually be secure, I think itself is a very layered and, and difficult question to answer. You want to take a stab at it? You can pass if you want to. <laughs> I think it's honestly, I think it's it's doing the absolute best that you can with the resources that you have in the domain that, that you're acting. And one way of that is like, if it's if it's not something that you would feel bad about getting up on stage and talking about or talking about in public, yeah, then it's probably okay. Um, if you if you feel like you couldn't do that, if you'd feel weird about it, then yeah, it's probably it's probably not okay. So yeah, I think you know it when you see it. Let's talk about the governmental and our policymakers' response to cybersecurity. What does the government get right about cybersecurity? What do our policymakers get right about cybersecurity, and what do they miss? You know, I think the biggest thing, especially with especially with the U.S. legal system, is that we're extending our concepts about fraud and crime to the domain specifically of cybersecurity, right? Because we know we're not a fairness-based legal system. I'm not a lawyer, right? But we know that there are easy procedural ways to get out of these laws. Like, why did I just didn't knowingly think that cybersecurity was a thing that I should be paying attention to, you know? Nobody told me I had to do that. Our legislation has to be extremely specific about where the definitions are and where the boundaries are so that everything just doesn't fall into a loophole. And so I think that part is good. We, we need to be paying attention to these issues. Just because you commit a crime online and anonymously does not mean it's okay. It wouldn't be okay in the physical world. It, it shouldn't be okay in the virtual world. And I think we have to make sure that our legislation keeps up with that. But as far as going beyond that and getting ahead of what the next set of unintended consequences are, again, I, I don't mean to take anything away from, from those folks, but I think ultimately 
the legislation is always going to lag and and not lead and that's okay it's just i think it's it's to recognize that as part of the construct that you're working within i think one of the uh, steps that the biden administration issued perhaps lagging but i think less so than perhaps is usually the case with our governmental apparatuses is a executive order that they issued on may 12th mobilizing federal agencies to step up their cybersecurity standards the department of justice or doj says it intends to use the federal false claims act a law that allows the government to bring claims against people or organizations that defraud the united states government to pursue what it calls cybersecurity-related fraud by government contractors and grant recipients. The Department of Justice stated that this could include, and I'm going to quote them here, knowingly providing deficient cybersecurity products or services, knowingly misinterpreting cybersecurity practices or protocols, or knowingly violating obligations to monitor and report cybersecurity incidences and breaches. What do these government decisions mean for companies, and what will they change in practice, if anything? I think what the intent is there to change, and again, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but, but I think the intent is to properly classify that behavior as what it is, which is a, a real offense, right? A real felony. Just because you happen to do this in a cybersecurity context does not mean that you can get away with it, that that's a, that that's a victimless crime. And I think that part is very positive. And I'm, I'm generally supportive of advocating for standards that have the intent of providing more protection over time. I mean, I think that's an that's an easy progressive viewpoint to to support. I think the danger though, and I realized I'm I'm biased as an engineer in saying this, but but I think the danger though is to assume that security problems are just malfeasance. They're just fraud. They're just there is that level of intentionality that must be true to suffer a security breach or or a security problem. I think we we certainly see lots of cases where that is true, but I can tell you in the numbers that I've seen, about half of the security penetrations that we see are from misconfigured software or vulnerable software. And that is not intentionally misconfigured. That is accidentally configured. And that does that doesn't happen sometimes. That happens quite, quite frequently. So my only discomfort there as an engineer would be linking fraudulent behavior to cybersecurity problems too closely. A lot of the security folks that I talk to will say that many security problems are really failures of imagination. They are not, and in some cases, they are things that were figured out years after the system was originally built and deployed. And that kind of stuff goes on all the time. I think you can you can reasonably say that legislation suffers from failures of imagination as well in the same regard. We all do. It's hard to see how, how this stuff is going to evolve. I think one thing about the, the, you know, you mentioned the executive order on May 12th. A good example of that is that order specifically calls out, you should be using encryption. Does it call out when <laughs> to use it? What kind of data, in what context, at what level? What level of encryption? Is it quantum level encryption? I mean, all of those details are not really specified. And I think that's smart. I think it's intentional. 
And I think that's, but I think it's, it's acknowledging that, that there are all kinds of details about how to apply that, that, that are not necessarily, not necessarily specifiable in advance. And in a lot of cases are really, really tied to the context of what that, what that system is really doing. And so you can set the standards of care and that's good to get that on the radar. It's good to be held accountable to, to these things. But again, I, I think the benefit of the, of the legislation is really to give the technologists at these organizations cover to actually implement those better standards and and just to have that on the the budget priorities and that's not going to fix fix everything overnight but but I think that will help us guard against the most rampant and most offensive behaviors that that we see doing the most damage in the market today so Rob I'll share a, a piece of personal information. I'm an insomniac. I stay up at night for a variety of different reasons, including wondering whether or not I left the oven on, remembering that I didn't respond to an email. Sometimes I have a dog who sleeps in my bed, doesn't help that much either. But I'm curious about you. About you. What keeps you up at night with regard to cybersecurity? If you are too, perhaps made once in a while an insomniac by cybersecurity fears. Any worst case scenarios we should be thinking about or know about help us stay up at night too with dread and fear <laughs> so that I'm not so that I'm not alone in this yeah i i like i said before i think there's a general sense that we're not winning here things are not on a healthy trajectory some of the stories that i've heard talking to folks out there i mean they they literally are stories that keep me up at night I mean, one story I heard, um, this was secondhand, but I heard about this group that they're, they're so thoroughly owned by their hackers that they've just kind of come to regard them as kind of rogue employees, like almost like, oh, you bring in the intern and they didn't know how do we do the time cards and the time cards all a mess, like, like almost like that, like, oh yeah, we set up this new stuff and they came in and they burned it down and we'll put it back and just being completely despondent about, you know, we can't keep these people out you know we we try to set up a clone of everything and they're in the clone before we're even done it is a horrible horrible feeling to put all this time and energy and late nights and coffee and chocolate into into building these systems and you you see them go out in into the real world and just be used in ways that you just didn't expect at all and see them literally used against you is really terrifying you know i mean Every business owner is is up late at night worrying about loss of control and risk. And this is just a whole new category for, for that. From from the really obvious things like what ransomware will I be tackled to all the way to how much should I be worried about my technical staff themselves having access to this stuff? How much are they gatekeeping? How much are they a risk? Cybersecurity, it's not it's not hearing about the best in people. It's, it's you know, it's uh, it's it's tough. It's tough. I read a piece in the New Yorker a couple of months ago that actually very much terrified me, probably kept me up at night as well. And I'm not even in cybersecurity. Um, but it really looked at the magnitude of the effects, everything from, you know, people losing all of their files in ways that are catastrophic. I can't imagine if I lost all of the files of all of my writing for my book um, to things like a hospital, um, not being able to access patient information with groups of people dying in beds in 
their ER or in, in their intensive care until they pay ransomware hackers. And, and so I think that this is a large magnitude order of things. I think we should be staying up at night and thinking about it. There are terrifying, you know, consequences. And I go out about and through most of my day engaging with platforms and thinking about things and storing my data with the expectation that it is going to be safe. And the magnitude and the range of platforms that I use probably should make me more concerned about that than I am. As a CEO of a company that seeks to tackle cybersecurity issues, what do you look for when you hire someone for your team? What skills, ideas, or values do you care about? So we're a startup. <laughs> so... Of course, the skills that we're looking for and the attitudes that we're looking for are strong skills, disruptive attitudes, disruptive thinking. But I think what, what we're really looking for and, and I think what a lot of startups are looking for in general are people that are looking to disrupt the status quo. And they feel that way on a personal level and they're ready to think that way like at a team level. You know, it's funny, Resurface specifically, we're all trying to do something kind of new and different. You know, I'm a first time CEO, but you, you go through our team. I mean, everybody on the team is is trying to do something new, something expressive, something they haven't done before. At times you feel like you're struggling because you're trying to do something really difficult under really difficult circumstances. And and that's okay. But but what we're really looking for are the people who can wake up wake up tomorrow and say, Yeah, let's do that new thing, that different thing. Let's try this out. And that's where I think it's I come back to I want to see people that are artists as much as engineers. Because as an artist, you always have a horrible fear of getting stuck or getting cast in one place. You know, that's the death of your art. That's the death of your career. And and I think we're really looking for the people that are applying that to, to their to their life. You know, I mean, I think at the end of the day, you can you can either choose growth or you can choose comfort. And we're we're erring on the side of, of growth and disruption. And it just ends up honestly it ends up being its own reward. If you are going to train the next generation of cybersecurity workers, thinkers and leaders, what would you want to tell them? How would you want to train them for the future of cybersecurity? The, the best thing to do is be as technical as possible. It's okay if you don't strive to be a coder. That's okay. There's lots of opportunities in tech for people that don't write code, just like there's lots of opportunities in medicine for people who aren't doctors. It's a huge field. The, the most important things to be thinking about are getting your technical chops up, learning how these systems really work, because a lot of this is learning how to use these systems in ways that they weren't intended. And that's hard to get trained on. That is very kind of outside the box thinking. QA struggles with the same thing, by the way. A lot of really good people in, in QA have that ability to use these things in the way that they weren't intended necessarily to, to see what happens. Not not everyone's good at that, but you can never be too technical. Even if you don't intend on in going that direction and being a coder, knowing, knowing more about how these machines work and how the code works, it's always going to help you. Thank you very much, Rob. I appreciate this conversation. Thank you. It's a pleasure. <laughs>